Good morning, everybody. Thank you all so much for joining us uh, for exploring our strange Bible. What are we, part, uh, part four now? All right. Well, it's good to see everybody here. Thank you all again for, uh, for choosing this class. If there's, a, if there's a week that you happen to miss or there's some material that you know, just by necessity of kind of when we, uh, when we start... We tend to start a little bit late. Uh, if there's something you want to go back and check, you can find all of that stuff on our website. You can find all that stuff on our website. So uh, happy for you to, to hunt that down or just ask me a question. Um, you know, come by after church. Call the church office. If you, um, if, if you want to say, hey, you, know, you mentioned something like that. What's something else I could read on? Anyway. But anyway, thank you all so much for joining us today again. Um, let's start off with a word of prayer. And then we can, uh, <laughs> sorry, Jerry, that, I'm giving that coffee just another extra second. Yeah, make sure it's nice and warm. Uh, let's start off with a prayer, and then we can uh, we get started. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your many blessings. We're grateful for some cooler weather. We're grateful for times to, uh, to be together. Lord, may we take advantage of these times to be together. May we continue to grow closer to each other, and may those relationships as iron sharpens iron may those relationships bring us closer to you may we learn to be more loving more patient more honorable more kind more compassionate more generous lord through all of our interactions together here in classes and in our life groups and in our worship services and any times in between may we always be shaped into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Father, as we study a little bit more about the Bible and how we came to have your word to us today, may you uh, help us to see that you have been at work in this process as, uh, as you have been at work in our lives um, as well. Father, thank you again for your Son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Guys, y'all come in and grab a seat, and um, I hear there's coffee in the kitchen. If you need a little bit of that uh, extra go juice, you can uh, hop in there and follow Jerry. Jerry will show you the way. Uh, yeah, emphasis, emphasis on need, right? If, if you have it on IV, you can find it in there. Um, so the title of this class, we've got some, some new faces in here. Uh, the title of this class is called Exploring Our Strange Bible. One of the things that I think for people who grow up in church... It, it might be easy for us to not realize. We might not recognize just how strange the Bible can be at times. And if you think, well, wait a second, no, I, I know all that stuff. Well, I mean, maybe because you grew up in church. But why, ask yourself, why do this, does the Old Testament have so many strange laws like when you build a house, make sure there's a low, low wall around the roof? Or if there's mold in your house, call the priest. Or don't boil a kid goat in the milk of its mother. All right, so there's some strange things in there. Yeah, and that's just like that's just three examples of some stuff in the Old Testament. 
there's a lot of other things that we could look at as well. What I'm hoping to do this class period is to build on what we did last week. Last week we talked about, very generally, how we got to have the books that we now call the Old Testament. And that was a long process over, over really a thousand years of uh, people writing things and then people coming back and kind of slowly you know, tacking things on and you know, f adjusting all this. And so let's, uh, let's review just quickly what we did last week. When we, again, this is a review. When we use the phrase Old Testament canon or New Testament canon, again, review, what does the word canon mean? Something like holy book, canon, Randall? Rule or standard? Rule or standard? Yeah. Some, what's that? What's accepted? That's right. Yeah, and I gave the example last, uh, last week of if you've got any Star Wars fans in here, right? There's all kinds of discussion about do all the extra novels that came out after the movies, do those count as canon and things like that? So, anyway, it's a similar kind of discussion. But yeah, it's like an exclusive list, right? And canons tend to be exclusive. Some things are in, some things are out. Canons are an exclusive lift, list of books or an authoritative collection. Okay, again, review from last week. How did faithful Israelites discern which Old Testament books were authoritative? What were they looking for in these books to determine this, this is authoritative for our life as Israelites. Does anybody remember? Gave them guidance. Gave them guidance, yeah, that's right. Generally speaking, yeah. Anybody else? What kind of guidance, maybe? <laughs> what do you say? Canonical? <laughs> what do you say? Canons? <laughs> yeah, like, function like a rule book. What, uh, what, what big traditions did these later books, who, I'll ask a very leading question. Traditions from whom were they trying to follow later? Moses, Moses that's right. And later accounts, right? Narratives of judges and prophets that faithfully carried on these traditions. These books of the prophets or other folks, they were considered authoritative if they faithfully carried on these traditions from Moses and, uh, and, and others as well. All right, so let me ask this again, this kind of review. Were the later Old Testament writings, now think like the Psalms and the Proverbs and the books of the prophets and things like that, were the later Old Testament writings immediately recognized as canonical? No. no. Or was the process gradual? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right, it was gradual. That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. I, I try very hard to, uh, to craft my questions to where they're not so easily answered. But, Sean, I appreciate you. As iron sharpens iron, here we are. <laughs> here we are. No, they were not immediately recognized as canonical. It was a gradual process. Through the centuries, faithful Jews recognized kind of the, the corroboration of the cohesion that certain books had with Torah, and specifically to the prophets, 
they recognized the importance of these writings. Faithful Jews looking you know, centuries after, like Isaiah and Ezekiel were writing, they realized, man, what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and these other prophets were doing, they were calling us, God's people, to a degree of covenant loyalty that some of these other books that we have written by other Jews just don't seem to do. And so they recognized God's spirit at work. They recognized how authoritative these things were. So basically we see this following process and kind of how the Old Testament was put together. There's a composite... Uh, Ridge, you had a question or comment. Yes, sir. It, it seems like I've heard that there were rabbinical uh, councils, you know, where the rabbis would be called in. And they would debate whether or not certain things were, as you say, you know, inspired or whether it was just... Stuck. Yeah. And I, reading some of the, the debates that they got into and some of the things that they said to each other, mm. very enlightening. Yeah. I mean, that's where Talmud came from is, being comments, yeah, comments and commentaries and, and thoughts and teachings kind of extrapolated from. Yeah, very true, very true. And so in the, for the Old Testament, and again, all this is a review from last week. For the Old Testament, we see this process, right? We see the composition, the original writings. Next in the process, we see some degree of editing, and a couple of examples uh, to that. Remember last week when we read the portions of Deuteronomy chapter 34? Who died at the end of the book of Deuteronomy? What important Old Testament figure died? Moses. Did Moses write about his own death? Okay, probably not. <laughs> okay. Now I have heard some people try to say, well, he was a prophet. So I was like, all right, guys, sorry. Prophecy doesn't work that way in the Old Testament. Doesn't work that way in the New Testament unless your name is Jesus. Anyway, Moses was probably not writing about his own death, right? Others were looking back and kind of piecing this together. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense, right? Moses dies. They mourn for him for 30 days. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says, And all the days all the day since then, not a prophet has arisen like Moses. Do you mean to tell me that they, 30 days after Moses died, they sat around and thought, Well, where's this prophet that Moses promised us? It's been a month. <laughs> Probably not. Okay, probably not. So, composition. Then, editing. Compiling together. Another point is this. The prophets. When God said, hey, you go and say to the people this message. Chances are they probably went and spoke that message to the people. And then maybe later wrote it down. And then whenever God did that again, they wrote those messages down. And then later, probably added in the sections where we have these narratives, these stories. So the message itself was probably written first in Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or some of these other. The message, sometimes multiple times, yeah. The message was probably written first. Then later they went back and added the narrative sections. Like, okay, here's, here's the circumstances under which I found myself when I needed to go say such and such to whomever. Composition, editing, use, and acceptance. People were using these. They recognized this is drawing us into covenant faithfulness. And then finally, canonization. Finally, canonization, kind of this capping off of these are, these are special in some way. Randall, comment or question? Uh, a comment. Yeah. Moses actually gave another rule for determining whether or not 
Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so for uh, along those lines to in Deuteronomy chapter 18, that is the that is the point in Deuteronomy where Moses says, "The Lord will raise up from among yourselves a prophet like me." Listen to that one. And then goes on to explain how they can determine whether or not a prophet has truly been sent by God. Yeah. Thank you, Randall. The books that would later form the New Testament or what I like to call the good stuff. <laughs> the books that would later form the New Testament, those have a similar history of composition, acceptance and use, and eventual canonization. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. Okay, turn to Acts chapter 1. If you're a new Christian, that's the fifth book in the New Testament. Don't, don't feel bashful if you need to hunt for your table of contents. If you've got a paper Bible, Acts chapter 1 Verses 6 through 8. We'll look at verses 6 through 8. Just a couple of verses here. The book of Acts begins as kind of a, a second... It, it makes sense as the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. Second volume of the Gospel of Luke. It's a, the, the order of the books of the New Testament is, is not sacred. Okay? The order of the books of the New Testament is not sacred. I kind of wish the Gospel of John had started off the New Testament because, does anybody remember, how does the Gospel of John begin? In the beginning. How does the book of Genesis begin? Okay, it's a conscious mirroring. Gospel of John is a conscious mirroring. Genesis begins in the beginning when God was creating the heavens and the earth. It begins with the stuff of creation. Gospel of John says, hey Moses, I'll, I see what you're doing, I'll raise you one better. In the real beginning yeah. was the Word. I kind of wish it started off that way. If you think that I'm a heretic for that reason, take me out to lunch and we can talk about it. <laughs> Alright, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Okay, This is a geographical outline for what happens throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So when they, meaning the disciples, had come together... They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, sweet mercy, stop asking me about that. <laughs> no, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the New Living Translation, I think. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, and then here's the geography lesson, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Chapters 1 through 7 are primarily focused around the church in Jerusalem. And then beginning in Acts chapter 8, end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, there is a persecution that sends Jesus' new believers out into Judea, Samaria, and eventually around the Mediterranean basin through chapters 8, 8 through 28. Times of transition can be difficult, 
but God can work mightily through that. And that is especially appropriate for our church in this season of transition that we find ourselves in. So Acts, chapter one, Acts chapters 1 through 7, Jerusalem, 8 through the rest of the book, they kind of interweave throughout Judea, Samaria, the Mediterranean world, come back to Jerusalem, okay. Now Jewish believers, right, they took this good news about Jesus throughout the known world. They were sharing it first in synagogues, right, that makes sense. You see Paul a lot of times in the book of Acts, he'll go to a synagogue. And then eventually, you know, depending on how it goes there, he'll go to other folks. So on that tends to be his M.O. Um, why did they start, why did Paul start with synagogues? What do you think? Why did Paul start with synagogues when he was taking the message out? That's right. Paul was a Pharisee, which meant he had very exceptional training in the law. He was a very sharp thinker. Paul would naturally go to places where he would find himself, right? You know, whenever I head to a new city, the first place I look for is either a Church of Christ or a barbecue restaurant. Okay. Right. Yeah, or, or a Whataburger if you happen to be from Texas. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm from Tennessee, and so barbecue... <laughs> Guys, I think Cal is going to take me out to lunch today. <laughs> Stephen Johnston and I drove all the way to Mathis, Texas on Friday to go to Butter's Barbecue, and it is worth the drive. Amen. Highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. I'm not sponsored by them in any way, but if any of them are listening and would be happy to sponsor us, you can talk to, uh, talk to Richard Scanio. Okay, they, that's a rational place. They started in synagogues. All right, since, since Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is at the core of the gospel, thinking about the books of the New Testament... Which books of the New Testament do you think were the first to gain wide acceptance? The letters. The the I think the Gospels. Letters are not a bad choice there, Ridge, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But I think the Gospels. I, I, I didn't want to say which four books <laughs> do you think. I think it was the Gospels. All right, all right, so we're thinking about the Gospels. Randall, yes, sir. That is fair. A, a current, according to, well, one of the first to gain wide acceptance. I think that was how I, how I worded. But yeah, Randall is correct. According to current scholarly consensus about the order of the composition of the Gospels, Gospel of John was probably written last, probably near the end of the first century. We can go into reasons for that to, later if you'd like. All right, which two Gospels, which two Gospels were written by apostles? Matthew and John. Thank you. All right, Matthew and John. Okay, this is pretty early church tradition. Now, the Gospels are technically anonymous, right? There's no, like nowhere in the text does it say, I, Luke, am writing this. As opposed to Paul's letters, right, which all start off with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, to the church and such and such. Okay. The Gospels are technically anonymous. That was actually pretty common. That was pretty common back in that time. It really annoys me when people start saying things like, when skeptics will say things like, well, we don't even know who wrote the Gospels. It's like, well, I mean, yeah, they're technically anonymous, sure. But there are a lot of other 
biographies written around the same times, given a hundred years either side of the Gospels. There are a lot of other biographies written that are also anonymous. We just don't have, we don't have definitive proof that Matthew and John wrote these. What we have is early church tradition. We don't have independent eyewitnesses affirming that Matthew and John wrote these, but here's what I think is important to mention. There are no competing claims that somebody other than Matthew wrote the gospel according to Matthew. And there's no competing claims that somebody other than the Apostle John wrote the gospel of John. And if there are, they're much later. But in terms of around the time when you have a succession of people who you know, n knew these apostles and knew their stories, generations on, there's no early competing claims of anybody having written things other than that. And so although it, in terms of the kind of evidence that a historian would like to have, it's not as firm as we would like it to be, it's still pretty good. It's still pretty good. All right, now question. So we talked with Matthew and John. What about the Gospel of Mark? Which apostle is Mark associated with? I heard two answers, Paul and Peter. Um, show of hands for Paul. Okay, show of hands for Peter. A little bit more. Let's take a look. This is from a church historian writing in the 4th century named Eusebius. If you've heard the name Eusebius before, he's written a lot of stuff. You can find his book called Ecclesiastical History. Ecclesiastical is just a fancy word for church. Okay? Here's what Eusebius says, writing a while later, but he says this. But now we are obliged to append to the words already quoted from him a tradition about the Mark, meaning the person Mark, who wrote the gospel. And so he's quoting from another person. And the elder used to say this, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not in order of the things that said or done by the Lord, for he had not heard the Lord talking about Mark, nor had followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded, but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles, so that Mark did nothing wrong in writing them down as he remembered them. So according to our church historian Eusebius, who has given us a lot of information about that time, he connects Mark with the Apostle Peter, let's turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 13, right at the end of 1 Peter. And if you, um, if you happen to flip too far, don't worry. You'll find yourself in the book of 2 Peter. Just turn back one, and you'll be there. 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 13. Um, your sister church... Uh, I'll read from the ESV. It's slightly, slightly different. But uh, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So he's, I, I think Peter, 
I think Peter's referring to another church here, and Babylon appears to be kind of a code, code word. It could be Rome. She who is at Babylon, who is also chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There is right there, according to Peter, association with a fellow by the name of Mark. Whether Peter means son literally, probably not. Paul can talk about Timothy as his son in the faith, and that might be what Peter's meaning here. But it appears that there is perhaps good reason to think that Mark might actually be the person who was closely associated with Peter and was just writing down what he remembered Peter saying, not in any particular order until, obviously, you get to the last week of Jesus' life, right? And then things kind of need to be in order. It'd be a little silly to put the Last Supper after the crucifixion. Okay, yeah, so we, obviously some order needs to happen there. So we've covered the uh, three of the four Gospels. Which apostle is Luke? associated with Paul Luke is associated with Paul turn with me to Acts chapter 16 verse 7 Acts chapter 16 verse 7 all these little cool hints in here that if we're not paying attention we might miss some of this stuff but we actually get to see that the network of early Christians was extraordinary it was extraordinary and there's some subtle things that they mentioned that we might not pick up on if, if we're unaware of how they were writing these kinds of things. Acts chapter 16, verse 7. All right, so remember, Luke is writing this. Pay close attention to the pronouns. All right, pay close attention to the pronouns. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. These are all places in the northern, northern part of the country of Turkey. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man from Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece, was standing there urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, I'm in verse 11, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, etc. Did you notice how the pronouns changed? They did this. The Spirit of Jesus kept them from doing this. And then when they came down to Troas, we did this. It's subtle, but Luke, Luke has very subtly inserted himself into the narrative now. It's an, them at that time I think so. That I, uh, according to what was conventional for people writing this kind of stuff in that day, first person indicated I was a participant. And then when they leave Philippi, you don't, see, you don't hear any of this we material anymore. Until they joined back up. I think he stayed in Philippi. Yeah. I think, I think Luke stayed in Philippi. All right, now, so due to their position, either as apostles 
or association with apostles like Mark and Luke, and not to mention their wide reach, the Gospels were among the first books to, consider, to be considered sort of universally authoritative. As Randall correctly mentioned, despite the Gospel of John being written a little bit later, it's still, the Gospel of John, one of the reasons why it's, why it's thought that the Gospel of John was written later is because, uh, is for a few reasons, uh, tradition says that the, gospel, that the author John, the Apostle John, lived very long. He might have been one of the few that did not die early in some kind of persecution, whether it was uh, persecution from Nero that was roughly in the mid-60s or later sporadic persecution that occurred from time to time. It appears that the Apostle John lived a while. And so, and, you know, and some of his things are just written later. His gospel would have been written later, but given his fame and reputation as the oldest surviving apostle, his gospel would have been universally accepted by Christians pretty quickly. Word would have spread pretty quickly as, uh, as these folks were, uh, were traveling and meeting with each other and you know, sending representatives from one church to another, as we see happening in the book of Acts. They didn't stop that kind of thing with the book of Acts. And so still thinking along these lines in terms of wide distribution, besides the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what other early Christian was known for traveling around the Mediterranean preaching and writing about Jesus? Paul. <laughs> yeah. That was a really leading question. I hope you followed that. Yeah, Paul. Question, did Paul write his letters by himself or did sometimes he have help? Yeah, Linnea, will you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1? Ridge, can you turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 1? Um, Randall, can you give us Romans 16, verse 22? All right. Sometimes Paul had other people working with him in crafting these letters. Now, obviously, we are right to say that they are from Paul, but there are other folks that show up. It's almost like Paul knew that he couldn't do it by himself and needed a team. Amen? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. Linnea, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And our brother Sosthenes. Okay. Guys, that's a good name for a kid. If anybody has got a kid in their future, Sosthenes. Yeah? Had Wellen been a boy, Sosthenes would have been great. <laughs> or Wellen. <laughs> it could, could have worked either way. Yeah. Um, let's see. Ridge, I think I had you give us Philippians 1, verse 1. Yeah. Paul and Timothy. Timothy shows up there. Randall, will you give us one of the last verses in the book of Romans? I, Tertius, wrote this epistle, or 
Wait, Tertius said he wrote the letter? No, Paul wrote the letter. What, what does Tertius mean there? Perhaps. Yeah. There's a, or having to infer, when Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians, and in other of his letters, he mentions, you know, see with what large letters, meaning the individual characters, I write. This, we can infer, maybe wrongly, or I think it's possible, either, we can go either way with it, kind of 50-50. Maybe Paul had bad eyesight. But this guy, Tertius, is the guy who physically put quill to papyrus and wrote this. All right, so Paul, Paul had help. For, a, for letter writing of this magnitude, and I mean in terms of length and in terms of quality, y'all might not know this, but the letter to the Romans is literally one of the longest letters from the ancient Greek and Roman world. It's literally one of the longest letters any individual letter writer had ever written. And there were some very famous and well-known letter writers, especially a contemporary of Julius Caesar's by the name of Cicero. Show of hands if you've ever heard of that. I don't mean the guy from the Hunger Games. Okay. For letter writing of this magnitude in terms of both length and quality, it was customary for the letter writer to keep a copy for himself and to send one to his recipient. Paul is not just sitting down and darting this stuff off. If you read Romans, or even a smaller one like Philippians, it's clear there's some real thought into this. And you know, when you can't simply, when you can't easily erase, and you really need to make sure you're not gonna make some mistakes. Paul is teaching and training, and Paul quickly realizes that his stuff, I, I see you read, so let me, let me run through this real quick. Paul quickly realizes that his stuff is useful for other Christians. His stuff is useful for other Christians. Quickly, I will read for you Colossians 4, verse 16. So you can turn there if you'd like. Paul realizes that what he's written to one church is useful for another church. And he says this at the end of the book of Colossians. Colossae is... Uh, kind of in uh, sort of central and eastern Turkey. And when this letter, meaning this letter that he's written to the church in Colossae, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. Now, we don't have this mysterious letter to the Laodiceans. It could have been lost or some people think it might be the letter to the Ephesians for reasons that I don't have time to go into. Either way, clearly Paul has written something over here and over here and said, okay, after you guys read this and get this, the implication is that they would make a copy of that so they could still have it, and then y'all swap letters so you have this. And so early Christians, including maybe even Paul or his team themselves, would have had the first collection of Paul's letters. And so this collection of Paul's letters 
would have started circulating pretty early on by the time that Paul is executed in Rome in the mid-60s. We've already got these letters circulating around and people again are seeing this is from the Apostle Paul. The one that we heard about, the one who had this dramatic encounter with Jesus on the road to the Damascus, okay, even though he wrote this to a church on the other side of the ocean, we need to, we need to take this into account. Ridge. Tertio means third. Mm -hmm. He's talking third person. That's the end. Oh, uh, you mean in, in Romans 16 there? Yeah. Oh, I, I possibly. I, I think it might just be his name. Tertius. Yeah, maybe, maybe, he was the, maybe he was the third kid in his family. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, third person. Uh, I haven't heard anybody go that route with it. it might, that, that might be a little out there. Yeah, <laughs> that's all right. We're out of time. But I'll wrap up with this. The other books, the other letters, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, Jude, the book of Revelation, all of these are either written by an apostle or somebody who was known to be a close associate with an apostle. The only one that we're really not sure who wrote it is the book of Hebrews. A lot of folks think it's Paul. In English, it's a little bit harder to tell the differences. In Greek, it, it feels very different from Paul. There's little hints here and there, but it feels very different. But still, the early church recognized this and said, man, we see this, we see this going well. So I'll wrap up with this. The formation of the canon is a long, gradual process, but similar to the Old Testament, the faithful could discern the Spirit of God at work long before canonization. They found these works authoritative and, to quote something from the canon, found them profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, one question about canonization is the issue of inspiration. And what does inspiration mean? Come back next week and we'll talk about that. Thank you all very much.